invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn uh, to 1 Kings chapter 16, page 298 from these Bibles in the pews. Today I want to begin a series on uh, the man Elijah. He is known as the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. When Jesus was transfigured before some of his disciples, it was Elijah and it was Moses that appeared with him. Uh, Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, so Moses was there. He's the fulfillment of all prophecy, so Elijah was there. And before I read some of chapter 16 and then the opening verses of chapter 17, let me give you a little background. Many of us did not grow up reading the Bible or being taught the Bible, and so the, the history in the Old Testament can seem rather confusing. It's pretty simple. So let me try and describe what leads up to what we're getting ready to read. As I mentioned at the baptism, in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant, which was a binding agreement. God made it with himself, but, but Abraham was the object of that covenant. For no reason that Abraham chose, God just chose him and said that he would be the God to Abraham's uh, the generations that came after him. So that became the Jewish people. The, the, the Jewish nation were the descendants, the blood descendants of, of Abraham. And then they uh, were in bondage in Egypt, and when they came out of that, they went to the, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And there for four centuries, for 400 years, it's a time called the Judges, when God led them led his people through these judges that he would raise up at different times, typically to deliver them from some enemy, men like Gideon, Samson, and others. The last judge was named Samuel. And Samuel was um, a godly man, and the people, though, under Samuel's ministry, demanded a king. They wanted to be like the other nations they saw that had a physical king over them. And God spoke to Samuel and said, they will regret this because the king will take, he will take, take, take. He will take their sons and their daughters to serve in his courts, to serve in his army. He will take the best of their land. He will take parts of the produce. Basically, to support the kingship, the only way he can do that is by taking what people have. So they wanted that anyway. They basically were saying, we don't want God to be the king over us. We want a king we can see. So the first three kings over God's people, the nation of Israel, was Saul, followed by David, and then followed by Solomon. Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. And unlike candidates today who often promise no new taxes, when Rehoboam became king, the first thing he announced is, You've not seen any taxes like you're getting ready to see now. Well, the nation was made up of ten separate tribes that were descendants of these ten, of the I mean, twelve separate tribes that were descendants of these twelve brothers and half-brothers. So ten of the tribes said, we're leaving. We're not having this kind of rule over us. So they became known as the Northern Kingdom. Israel. 
And the kingdom to the south was made up of the remaining two tribes, and they were called Judah. Each of these nations now, I mean, it was a, a nation divided, so each of these two, two nations now, two kingdoms, had a series of kings. The north had 19 kings who served, and the south had 20 kings who served. Then, it, well, you say, what stopped it? What stopped it was the Assyrians came in and obliterated, basically, the northern kingdom. Then, years after that, Babylon came over and, and pretty much did the same to the south. So, from the united monarchy, under the kingships of Saul, David, and Solomon, this became, when you've got two nations with kings over each, this became called the time of the kings. And then all that ended the way I mentioned to you. So there were 19 kings over the northern kingdom. There were 20 over the southern kingdom. Now, you talk about a, a pretty bad group of guys. Out of that 19, not one of them sought God. Zero were any good. Of the 20 in the south, only eight had a proclivity toward the things of God. So Elijah is a prophet who God sends to the king of the northern kingdom named Ahab. Let me read a few verses about Ahab at the end of chapter 16, beginning in verse 29. And then I'm going to go back and tell you how Ahab became king. Today is really, I didn't know how to call it. I mean, this is background information. Someone, thankfully, before the service said prequel. Okay, this is a prequel to the to the sermons that are going to come. I'm going to give you the background about Elijah and about what's happening in the nation. Hear God's word beginning in verse 29, chapter 16. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, he took for, him, for his wife Jezebel, uh, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I'm going to stop at that point. That's one of the benefits of a series of sermons. I can just abruptly stop and say I'll pick it up next time. Let's pray together. Father, we pray you might take these lessons from ancient history and apply them to our hearts now. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let me tell you about this, this line of kings leading up to Ahab. As I mentioned, Rehoboam was the son of Solomon who, who 
became oppressive and said, I'm going to tax you like you've never been taxed. And then 10 of the tribes said, we're leaving. So the first king of that northern group, those 10 tribes who went to the north, was named Jeroboam. And I'm just going to tell you what the previous chapters have said. I'm going to summarize it for you. Uh, Jeroboam was an evil man, and he led the people away from the worship of God, the worship of Jehovah, Yahweh, into idolatry. This is what it says about him back in chapter 13 of 1 Kings. He made priests for the high places, again, from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priest of the high places, and this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. So here's the first king of that northern kingdom, and he reinstitutes these pagan forms of worship in these high places that often would involve uh, child sacrifice, temple prostitution. I mean, it was as far away from what the Israelites had been taught about the worship of God. He institutes it as the king. So that's Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom. Now, he has a son named Nadab, and Nadab becomes king. And in chapter 15, it says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So he reigns for two years before he's murdered. And he's murdered by the next man who becomes king named Baasha. Uh, he not only, Baasha not only murdered Nadab, he murdered lots of people. Uh, he wiped out anyone associated with Jeroboam's previous dynasty, the first king. And so he establishes a 24-year reign, basically, of terror. In 1 Kings 15, it says of Baasha, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Now comes a king named Elam. Um, Baasha who had reigned for so long, one night he's in a drunken stupor, and Eli has him assassinated uh, by his servant named Zimri uh, after only a two short years of rule. And it says of, of him in chapter 16, Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Baasha for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Eli his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger for their idols. So now Zimri becomes the king. Uh, he murdered the king before him and all his house and Baasha's house, household. So Zimri's next to sit on Israel's throne. Now this one's pretty incredible. Zimri had a lengthy reign of one week. How would you like that? It's got to be a record in somebody's book. So he reigns for one week, and then the people beg a man named Omri, who's the commander of the army, to be their king. So Omri complies, and he, he agrees. He says, I'll become the king. So he laid siege to the city where Zimri, the present king, the one that had been king for a week, is. And Zimri, in desperation, commits suicide. We find that in chapters uh, uh, 17 and 18, or verses 17 and 18 of 1 Kings 16. And it summarizes it in verse 19. It says about Zimri, he sinned, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin, which he did, making Israel sin. I mean, it's like that line repeats itself, the same description over and over. You just kind of change the name of who it applies to. And now comes a man named Omri, O-M-R-I. And Omri reigns 12 years. And Omri, though he's godless or 
pagan, worship pagan gods, he manages to bring some level of stability that's been lacking. He brings it to Israel, the northern kingdom. But he never seeks God. In fact, it says in 1 Kings 16, he exceeded all his predecessors in his evil acts. For he walked, quote, verse 26, for he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now, if we started with the first one, Jeroboam, and came all the way through Omri's reign, it's covered about 60 years. So for those of you about that age, your whole life, you had been in the northern kingdom with one king after another whose God describes as just exceeding the one before him in their wickedness. So you might have thought, boy, things can't get worse. I mean, it's bloodshed, it's murder, assassination, it's idolatry. And the tentacles of idolatry had been spreading all through that northern kingdom during this 60-year, these reigns of these kings. So they were probably thinking, how can things be any worse? They can't get any worse. <laughs> but they were wrong because they're getting ready to have a king who's Omri's son named Ahab. And so let me tell you about Ahab. He has a unique distinction in the record of all the kings. And that is, it says in chapter 16, verses 30 and 33, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab did no more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who before him. So he not only followed in the footsteps of all who'd gone before him, he exceeded them, and he did so for 22 years. That's how long he reigned. Now by himself, Ahab was bad news, but he was not by himself. And he brings his wife, Jezebel, and uh, you know how they tell you in job interviews, in case you don't know, and I hope you understand this, I hope I say it correctly, the wife of the job candidate is never a neutral factor. Now, Jezebel, the understatement of the millennium would be to say Jezebel was a neutral factor. This was a woman of, uh, of great influence. How did Ahab come to be married to this woman? Money. So what else is new, right? Money. It came about because of money. During the reign of Ahab's father, Omri, there was a noticeable change in their policy toward surrounding nations. Omri had been seeking a commercial and political alliance with the nation to the north called Tyre, T-Y-R-E. And he wanted a share of the commercial trade that was coming through the Mediterranean and would come to the shores of that northern kingdom, of the, the kingdom to the north of Israel. And he also wanted an ally that could protect them from their enemies. So it was a diplomatic relationship. And often in the ancient Near East, to seal a diplomatic relationship, you did it with a diplomatic marriage in which a member of one royal household would marry the member of the other royal household, and supposedly that would help to keep peace. So Omri concluded his alliance with a, the king to the north called Ethbaal of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, 
And he concluded that diplomatic arrangement by arranging for his son Ahab to be married to the princess Jezebel. So that's how this happened. Well, when Jezebel packed to move down south, she brought with her an 850-person entourage, 450 prophets of Baal. I'll tell you about him in a minute. And 400 prophets to the, to the deity, uh, the goddess Asherah. And so she shows up, and any idea of religious pluralism, she missed that lesson because she's planning basically to introduce Baal worship to the whole place. And let's do away with Jehovah or Yahweh worship. Now, let me go back before all this happened. <clears throat> when, when the people of Israel came into the Promised Land, after Moses, under the leadership of Joshua, the people that lived there were called Canaanites in the land of Canaan. And there was a multitude of religions and religious observances. And so as they went into that land, often the reason God said to destroy certain places was to wipe out the idolatry. So they were always susceptible to the temptation to worship other gods. And so Canaanite sanctuaries had proliferated all through that land before the Israelite conquest. So you might say, we'd use the term today, they were predisposed. The Israelites were predisposed uh, toward idolatry given where they moved into that land. And so, but it was not until Jeroboam that it began to be reinstituted. And what he did, not only did he revive the Canaanite shrines, he changed the worship of God, of Yahweh, uh, under the symbol of a bull. So he made a graven image and would still say, well, you can worship Yahweh, but there, use this bull to do so. Now God's first commandment of the Ten Commandments dealt with having no other gods before them because they were moving into a place where that was always going to be a danger. Now, let me tell you about Baal. You've heard that name many times. If you, I mean, you even hear that in secular movies sometimes. Baal was worshipped under many names throughout the ancient Near East. And there were numerous variations. But essentially, in archaeology, Baal has been depicted as the, the nature deity. The deity over all of nature, over weather, over storms, over rain... He's called the rider of the clouds. He's often portrayed with a lightning bolt in one hand and his voice is that of thunder. And so these ancient cultures, agrarian, relied on agriculture. You could see how it would be almost natural, sinfully natural then to worship something that you thought would provide the rain and the, the fruit of the land for our survival. And that's what they did. Since all of life was tied to the fertility of the land, then it's not hard to see why there would be a temptation even for Israel to worship Baal. Now, at the first service, uh, I read this quotation, but I said I forgot where I got it, but I put the initials GTB. And thankfully, Brandon Oren, after the first service, said that's Gospel Transformation Bible. I said, I just wrote this down last week, and I didn't remember where it came from. Now, here's what it just says about these times. Throughout chapter 16 of 1 Kings, hope steadily builds for a king who will not fail as one king after another does here. 
The subtle but ever-heightening question that the reader is brought to ask is, when will a real king show up? How will Israel ever get on the right track in light of the miserable moral record of the leaders? Well, the king would one day come, and that king would be Jesus. So you have to see how this is pointing ahead. It's showing one bad king after another, one mistake after another, but it points ahead to a king who will be sinless. Okay, let's look for a couple of minutes or a few moments at Elijah. Chapter 17, verse 1, he just appears suddenly. I don't mean he appeared out of thin air, but I mean he arrives on the scene. He's not even been mentioned leading up to this. And he comes before Ahab, and he makes this pronouncement, no rain except by my word. Now you can see how that is a frontal assault on which God, Baal, the God of fertility, the God of nature, the God that Mrs. Ahab has now really promoted throughout God's people. And, and Elijah says, no rain except by my word. And then he leaves. Lord willing, next week I'll tell you what happens when he leaves. And we're going to be looking at several things that happen with Elijah. But for today, let's just look at two things about him. His boldness and his name. His name means the Lord Jehovah is my God. I would assume he had godly parents to give a name like that. So anyone that spoke Hebrew in those days, they said, well, this is Elijah. The Lord Jehovah is my God. Boy, what a fitting name for what we're going to see happens. The next thing I want you to see about him is, is his boldness. I mean, for him to come before the king, the king had the power over life and death then. It could mean his death if the king wanted it. It could mean his imprisonment. It could mean the death of any family or friends that he had. But what made him bold? What made Elijah so bold? And I draw this from some other places in the New Testament especially that speak of Elijah. First, he was convinced of the reality of God. You don't stand up against the crowd if you're doubting what you're saying. If you doubt whether God really exists, whether Jehovah God, the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, whether he really existed, you, you, you and I, we wouldn't do that. And it, Elijah was convinced of the reality of Jehovah. He knew God's commands. He knew the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So he didn't need to pray about, should we also worship Baal and Asherah along with Jehovah? He knew the reality. He knew the truth, and he knew, he, was con he had the conviction that God alone is to be worshipped. Second, he was bold because he believed God's promises. At the end of Joshua, well, throughout Joshua, God promises to be with him. He says in chapter 1, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I think Elijah knew that he was not standing alone before Ahab, but God was with him. And when Christ tells us, gives us the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, what does he say? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We need that same conviction. So I think he was bold because he had the reality of, the, uh, of God. Secondly, he had, knew that he was a representative of Jehovah. God had called him to this. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, We are all ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So you, believer, maybe you're not like an Old Testament prophet, of course we're not, with a special calling like that, but we are ambassadors. We make appeals to others on behalf of God. A few weeks ago, many of us received email updates or read about 
something that happened with a Bible translation ministry in one of the Middle Eastern countries. They were, they did not give out many details of where because of light of what I'm getting ready to tell you. But this ministry in this particular office in that particular country was working on translating the Bible into eight different languages spoken in that one country. They have no Bible translation, so they were working to translate the Bible in those eight languages. There were five people in the office, in the translation office that day, and militants came in with guns. They immediately shot and killed two of the translators. They turned the guns on the computers and on the building and on all the equipment, and in shooting all that up, they used up their bullets. The lead translator had fallen on the floor. The two other translators fell on top of his body to protect him. The militants took their rifles and bludgeoned to death the two on top of the lead translator, and then they ran. And an email went out from the ministry, which you might expect to say, uh, we're, the lead translator lived, but we relocated him to a safer place. We've decided in God's providence it's probably not wise for us to go there. We're wanted other places. Was that what the email said? No. Here's what it said. The lead translator is recruiting a new team. We're staying right there, not in the same building, but in another building. We're redoubling our efforts. We need more translators because one hard drive in one of the computers was recovered and all eight translations were on that hard drive. So he said, we're redoubling our efforts. We're staying exactly where we are and to reach these people. What gives people boldness like that? It's the conviction that knowing I'm an ambassador for Christ and he's called me to be here and it doesn't matter whether I get killed in the process or not. That must have been the thinking of Elijah. Last thing about Elijah, he used the resources God gave him. James, in the book of James toward the end of the New Testament, tells us primarily that was prayer. That Elijah, it says, was a man with a nature like ours. This is from James 5. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain again. So James is saying that the energetic, fervent prayers of a righteous man are a potent force in calling down the power of God, even for restoring weak, struggling brothers. That's the context in James. So Elijah was a man like us. He was not perfect. He was not the Messiah. He was not Christ. He was not sinless. We're going to see that as we go along. And yet God used him. (coughs) Years ago at Clemson, at Clemson University, two students were burdened to pray every day at dinner for spiritual awakening on their campus. And they began to gather others, say, hey, join us right after supper. We're going to go and we're going to pray. Well, by the end of one school year, one nine-month term, there were 200 students meeting regularly after dinner to pray for awakening on their campus, and it came. And today, in various places around the world, there are missionaries, there are pastors, there are lay leaders who came out of that awakening that took place at Clemson. I could tell you about an almost identical thing that happened at Georgia Tech years ago. The song we sang earlier, Here is Love, Vast as an Ocean, came out of the awakening that took place in Wales uh, around 1905. 
And that song was kind of a banner song that was sung during that time. What does James attribute that to? The prayer, the fervent prayer of a righteous man. And he uses Elijah as that example. So I close with this. What we see here is a list of bad kings, a cyclical, I have a cyclical view of history. Yes, it's leading up to a culmination of when Christ comes again, but in the meantime, I think it's very cyclical. You see this through the Bible, and you see these cycles of it just going down and down and down, and yet God then acts, and he moves um, in relative great speed. So here is an imperfect prophet going before an imperfect king. Jesus is a perfect prophet and a perfect king. You can trust what he says. You can trust how he leads you as you serve him. He will never lead you astray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the way you work in history, in lives, that you're not just an idea or a philosophy but you are engaged and involved in each of our lives. May our trust be in Christ and him only as our king, as our prophet, as our revealer of truth. For in his name we pray. Amen.